over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, it's a delight to have Dr. Michael Buer on the podcast today. Dr. Buer, thanks for agreeing to hop on in context and chat with us. Hey, very glad to do it. I really appreciate the invitation. So for many years, you were with Bible.org. That's the Hampton Keithley and Buse Fanning, all those guys. Yeah, I started working with them when I was in my doctoral program here at DTS. And so it was just a nice fit. I was, of course, learning all the language and doctrine and history and got to apply that in translation. So I did that while I was going through my doctoral program and have really enjoyed seeing the Net Bible become more popular and more usable by people all over the world. So it was a pretty exciting thing to be involved with. Well, and of course, Bible.org is, I tell people all the time, you know, check out Bible.org. It's free. It's got more resources than you have time and some great, great exposition and great, you know, Word documents, or if you want to listen to it or download it, it's, it's a great ministry. We've we've benefited from it many, many times. So you work with that. You also worked with the completion of the New English translation, Novum Testamum Grazie. <laughs> yep, that's a mouthful. Yeah, we had the opportunity to take the work we were doing on the Net Bible translation and to pair with the German Bible Society and to do basically a Greek-English diglot. Very helpful for students, uh, good for digging into, you know, of course, the original language, but also a lot of issues that need explaining with the notes in the Net Bible. So I'm very proud of that work, very thankful that it still has some longevity. Unfortunately, we worked with NA27, and now they've moved on to NA 28, but it still has a lot of value. So we still encourage students to get it and use it and read it. So for our listeners that don't know a diglot, don't know Nestle 27, 28, 29, probably forthcoming, give them a little a little 25 explanation oh, of okay. these are Greek New Testaments, Nestle right. Alland. Yeah, those, it's a scholarly edition of mm-hmm. the Greek New Testament. So it's the, as best as we can determine with our text critical knowledge and understanding, the wording of the original documents that Paul wrote, that Matthew wrote, et cetera. And so we use them for scholarly research, for exegesis as a basis for our studying of the New Testament, because we want to get to the original of what Paul said so that we can be as clear as possible in our understanding. And a diglot is basically when you put the English on one side and the Greek on the other, so you can have basically a study aid, a translation to compare to. It's kind of a, a nice, um, I was going to say training wheels. I don't mean that in a negative sense. Well, it's, it's, it's not a, it's, it's not an interlinear, but it's a yeah. side by side so that, you know, I mean, I'm fairly good in the Greek text, but it's a lot handier to have the English mm-hmm. text. So, oh, okay, that's the word I'm missing. That's the phrase yeah, I'm missing. Yeah, exactly. So so it helps in reading and comprehension, but it also enables you to dig a little deeper in mm-hmm. certain ways than you might with just an English translation or maybe even just with the Greek text by itself. Well, let's talk about this letter that Dr. Honer spent a big part of his life studying, and you and I are trying to study and teach others about this letter. Give us, uh, I always like to ask our experts, give me like a 25, 50-word summary of the letter, the way you would talk about it to someone who maybe didn't know what Ephesians was about. Sure. I would phrase it this way, and I actually had a chance just to teach this yesterday to my students in Greek 4 because we're covering this book. Basically, the salvation that God brings us creates a beautiful saved church 
that gives us a context for our sanctification. Uh, so we, mm-hmm. we go from Christ saving us to creating his beautiful bride, his body, the church. And that then is the context in which our sanctification plays out each and every day. Mm. That's good. That's good. I often ask, I think I always ask our guest on these Pauline books, he always spends the bulk of what we call chapter one in Christology. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, in Ephesians, we have a Trinitarian sort of doctrine unfold. And the first, like four to six, he talks about the Father, then seven to 12, the Son, then 13 and 14, the Spirit. Give me your, you know, your observations on his, we've talked with other guests about what a brilliant logical, theological mind Paul the Apostle has. Mm-hmm. But give me your kind of summary of the organization is so crisp, and mm-hmm. yet you could spend weeks on each of these verses if you yeah. had a mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those, it's interesting when you study Paul, there's certain things that he says that are his main topics and his main ideas. But it's clear that he is weaving in and out of every argument a deeply Trinitarian theology, a passionate worship of Christ, a conviction of the Lord's present power to both save and to sanctify. So, you know, for example, we could talk about the salvation as the key theme, for example, of chapter one, but he weaves in and out so much about who God is, how God has worked, what he's doing, what he's going to do. So there's no lack of theological topics and ideas that we could dig into. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of Paul's genius. He doesn't just say, for example, obey the Lord in this thing. He says, obey the Lord because of what he has done for you and because of who he is. So there's such a a substratum of theological goodness to dig into whenever Mm -hmm. we get into any of these topics. Why do you think, contextually, writing to the believers in Ephesus, why do you think he speaks so much about predestination, about election? You know, he chose us in him before the finish of the world. He predestined us to adoption. I know that's a big question about that Mm -hmm. sentence. Uh, Verse 11, having obtained an inheritance, having Mm -hmm. been predestined. What did they need to hear contextually? And then, of course, we can talk about how we apply it. But what's your sense of what's Mm -hmm. going on? You know, I think the best way to set this up would be to remind us that Paul was writing to the Ephesian church, and you may remember there's some debate as to whether or not that was the only church he was writing to. There may have been some other churches in the areas that would have gotten this letter. But these were churches that were in the minority within a culture that was doing everything possible to destroy them, in a sense. It's really kind of analogous to the way we sometimes feel today as believers Mm -hmm. in the midst of our current culture. So if we just think about the church in Ephesus, Ephesus was a major cosmopolitan city. There was all kinds of pagan worship, negative influences, things that could ultimately, if the believers weren't careful, ultimately destroy their witness and destroy their faith. So Paul was talking to believers who were in the midst of a difficult situation. And so by talking about things like predestination and election, he reminds them that God has been in complete control of all of these situations and of their salvation from the foundation of the world. Mm. Nothing that's happening to them today in the Ephesian temples and the the worship of Artemis, et cetera, that was going on, nothing that's happening around them has taken God by surprise. He saved them particularly for that moment. And so it gives them hope, I think, that God's in control, that God knows what he's doing, and they can trust him to live as they should as the church so that they might have a great witness to those around them. In chapter one, we have so many key terms and ideas. We have, uh, oh, let me just back up one verse, verse three. I often quote this verse in churches, and when I teach about he's blessed us with every 
spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And I often wonder if the average believer understood what that meant, even a modicum, that you know, you and I have every spiritual, but we don't need any more. <laughs> right. Yeah. We, I mean, it's one of those things, we know the meaning of the words, but when we put them together, it's almost impossible to comprehend. It's too much, it's, yeah. It's beyond what we can think. So it's an important reminder that the salvation that we have doesn't lack anything because our Lord doesn't lack anything. Mm. Christ is completely able to save, and he has given us every spiritual blessing. Uh, I've used the term that his bountiful beneficence to us. That's we good. have everything that we need, and we don't lack anything in our salvation. So again, not from a diagrammatic or certainly not a diglot, but we have he chose us, predestined, mm-hmm. adopted, redeemed, forgiven, mystery of his will, kind intention, mm-hmm obtained an inheritance, on and on it goes, the stacking of terms. You talked about salvation and sanctification. And again, from his argument uh, in chapter one, and we break these as chapters. They were letters. They weren't broken up like this for the first century reader and hearer. But again, give me another run at the argument and why he's unpacking it with such a heavy emphasis on our salvation, chosen, predestined, adopted kind of intention of his will, you know, what's he getting at for them? And if we can jump to application, Michael, how is he, you know, reminding us today? Hendricks often said, when you read the Bible, it's not what God would say if he was here. It's mm-hmm. what God is saying because he is here. <laughs> sure. Amen. Yeah, I think I would kind of restate what I said before. Okay. The salvation that God has given us is so deep, so extensive. It leaves no area of our lives untouched. It involves God's own will, his own desire from the very beginning and foundation of the world. So I think when Paul is marching through these particular technical, you know, theological concepts that uh, are sometimes difficult to understand, he's wanting the Ephesians to get how deeply they have been saved, how Mm. perfectly they have been saved. As I mentioned, the living in Ephesus was no picnic for these believers. And so therefore they needed the encouragement that God had perfectly accomplished their salvation and there was no lack. He did not miss anything any jot or tittle when he was getting his plan Mm -hmm. in place. And so once they recognize that, that then gives them a foundation on which to start building a life of holy living in response to that. So I would argue that Paul is being very pastoral by giving them the proper foundation of understanding on which to build their behavior that impacts their daily lives. Mm Talk to me, Michael, about this word sealed, sfragizo. Verse 13, we often talk about this. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, which again, not to digress too much, but you got to hear it and you Mm got to embrace it by faith. You were sealed in him Mm -hmm. with the Holy Spirit of promise. And that's only used a handful of times in our New Testament, and it's a big word. Help us out a little. Yeah, a seal would be a sign of ownership, a sign of authenticity. So, for example, if somebody was sending a document to someone else, they would put their seal on it so that it would be you know, shown to be theirs. So it is the proof that we belong to the Lord God. If you pair that with the idea of the down payment in verse 14, the Holy Spirit that we have who has sealed us, who shows God that we are his, who is in our lives— That is the powerful proof that our salvation is permanent and will certainly be accomplished. Mm. So the Holy Spirit in our life shows us that we belong to God, that we are His, that our future salvation is secure. It's a wonderful benefit of our salvation that brings great assurance to believers. 
There is a word Paul uses in its kleronomias, klerao, the inheritance, inherit, heir term. I remember mm-hmm. years ago, Mike doing a deep dive on that word, and there's quite a you know wide set of fields of meaning. You got a sense on how Paul is using it. I mean, verse 7, he talks about our inheritance. He brings mm-hmm. it up again, and I just lost it. Verse 18, his inheritance mm-hmm. in the saints. Is that salvation? Is that reward? I think it's probably both. When I think about inheritance, I'm influenced by some study that I've done in the book of Galatians, which Mm -hmm. ties it to being connected to Abraham. Paul doesn't do that in Ephesians, but it's a parallel concept that we can kind of use to flesh out the idea. I think the idea is is that God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to give him a wonderful blessing. He was going to make him the father of many nations. And ultimately, that was going to be the way that God would redeem the world. It was kind of the start of God's redemption story. And so when we talk about being an heir's and having an inheritance, it connects to that idea of God working out his redemption of the world. All of the bad that came from the fall, all of the bad that was shown in the flood and the Tower of Babel began to be reversed when God spoke to Abraham. And so that idea of inheritance ties back to that original story. God is ultimately going to redeem us. And I believe it would include salvation specifically, but also it would be all of the blessings that we have in our daily walk. It would be the holy living that we can undertake. I think it's a really big term. Mm -hmm. So I don't like to divide it into one or the other. I think Paul is using it to say everything that God is doing for us is that wonderful inheritance that we're going to receive. And that deals with our salvation in the past as well as our salvation in the future. Mm, Good. Let's jump to chapter two. I know it's a huge jump, but for time's sake, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Let's just, you know, put a benchmark down there. You're dead. You can't get out. You can't help yourself. And so unfold perhaps one of the most richest salvific passages we have in chapter Mm -hmm. 2, verses 1 through 10, I guess, technically. Yeah. What Paul is doing is now, I think, going into a deeper dive on what the salvation looked like. So chapter one kind of sets the stage about this beautiful blessing of salvation we've received. And I was going to go deep and kind of explain what it looks like. And a lot of people argue that this kind of deals with either the personal or perhaps the vertical aspect of our salvation. In other words, when we looked at our relationship from God's perspective, we were totally dead. Dead meant dead. It meant no life. It meant inability. It meant we were totally incapable of doing anything to save ourselves. And that was because of our sins, as you read in verse one. And not only that, the sins were over us because we were living according to the ruler of the domain of the air, the ruler of the spirit of this world. So basically Satan was in control of everything about who we were and who we existed as at that point in time. So that's kind of the beautiful negative of our salvation. It's oftentimes said when you share the gospel with folks, you got to get them lost before you can get Mm -hmm, them found. And mm -hmm. so Paul is making us totally and completely lost, uh, realizing exactly how terribly bad we were. So dead is kind of an image there to help us get that, but we don't want to disconnect it from what follows all of the negative things about the world around us. So it was a one complete package. Satan was in control of this world. He is leading people to sin and those sins killed us totally dead so that we, there was no way we could save ourselves. But then as you know, verse four comes the, but God God. phrase. Uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Praise the Lord for that. Because of what God wanted to do in us and because of his love for us, and as it says there, being rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ. That image is a powerful one because what it implies is that when Christ was on the cross, those who have faith in him 
were there as well. And Paul uses that as a image of killing sin, killing the sinful man, just as Christ died on the cross our sinful nature and our guilt for sin died on the cross as well if we have faith with him. And then the turnaround is, is that we are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It's an image of being so connected with Christ that it's as if we went through his death and resurrection together with him. And so that's kind of the flip side. Just as we were so dead before, now we are so alive in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful picture of how our salvation totally changes our circumstances, all to God's grace and thanks to him. He introduces, and I think, correct me please, uh, verse 2, chapter 2, formerly walked. And that begins this discussion. And I'd love your, if you want to take a little sidebar and talk about from a New Testament perspective, mm-hmm. this term that Paul uses about walk. And we have five times, I think, in Ephesians, five walks after this one. I think uh, you're right. Yeah. And this manner of life, this you know, it's such a common word. Again, you, you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, it's a common word, but boy, the breadth of meaning, it feels a meaning that, you know, one step in front of the other, but it's all we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in chapter three, he says, you're by nature children of wrath. Mm-hmm. You can't walk in the right direction, we might say. You can't do anything to get God's attention. He had to do it in your place on your behalf. But any sense of help us out with this expanded idea that he's going to use walk in worthiness, walk in wisdom, etc.? Yeah, the image of walking actually originally came out of the Old Testament. I'm sure you remember your Hebrew, the verb halach, yep. and it's used in these proverbs. you know these proverbs exactly. Paul is both using that idea, but he's also, I think, using it's a term that shows up even in Greek philosophy. So it's not an unusual mm. metaphor, but it's meant to cover every aspect of our daily existence. I heard the term a lot when I was growing up as a young believer. People would encourage me in my walk. It's kind of a metaphor that yeah. we use pretty regularly. Christianese. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. But but it's meant to cover stem to stern, everything about who we are and how we live each day. So it's a, it is truly a, if I could say it this way, a daily word about how we act each day and respond to God each day. And in Proverbs, it's either or. You're walking in wickedness or walking in righteousness. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's no, you know, gray line. Yeah. And I think Paul maybe changes the metaphor just a little bit mm-hmm. because he does encourage obedience in the right direction, but it certainly is rooted in that. And that gets us to the theological substratum that we were talking about before. We can't walk the way God wants us to unless we are saved. Because we're dead. And- Yeah, exactly right. And any efforts that we undertake are always undergirded by what God has already done for us. So there's no sense of meritorious works or anything of that nature. It's a matter of obedience and, in a sense, cooperating with what God has already done. And I've never watched The Walking Dead, but I often think about the double entendre of the title, The Walking Dead. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought about that, but yeah, I guess guess that would work. (laughs) We're just uh, walking around dead. Nothing you can do about it. Let's talk about perhaps one one of the more, I always resist saying most important verses, but certainly one of the favorites of so many people, chapter two, verses mm-hmm. eight and nine, for by grace, you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is right. a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Yeah. These verses are some of the verses I memorized early on in my life mm-hmm. when I was a young believer and trying to memorize scripture. It encapsulates so much theology in just these two little verses. It covers the fact that we have to have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we can do. It is something that is only a gracious gift from God that we receive. Um, it removes any boasting and comparison between us because we're all 
did and saved by grace. I mean, there's so much that is packed in there that he unpacks in other places, for example, in the book of Romans, as you know. But yeah, that is a a verse that you can hang your whole life on because it encapsulates so much of what our salvation is about. And why do we forget verse 10, Mike? I think we forget verse 10 because we all, in a sense, struggle with a desire to prove ourselves, to accomplish our own salvation. You know, a lot of the Christian life, I think, is recognizing that anything good that I do is totally and fully from God. And that's what verse 10 is about. We do good things. We have blessings in our lives because of what God has chosen to do. We are his creative work is the way the net Bible translates it. KJV that I remembered from growing up is workmanship. We are his creation. Uh Yeah. And so anything that we've got in terms of holiness or righteous behavior or living is really the outworking of what God has done for us already in his desires for us. And so it turns us back around to just worship him anew. Um, We worship him for our salvation, but we also worship him for our sanctification as it plays out each day. And it's so interesting, the juxtaposition of you can't do anything to earn your salvation, but oh, by the way, there are some works for you to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was raised Roman Catholic and many, many dear friends over the years who, you know, we've had these long discussions about the role works play. I have a dear, 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 precious you know, loving person with a rosary clutched in their hands, I quote verbatim, I know Jesus died for my sins, but I must do my part to atone for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually have had the opportunity to share the gospel with some Mormon missionaries that have come by our house, and it's a very similar concept. They mm-hmm. feel like they've got to either you know prove themselves or do the work to atone for sins that may have been committed after salvation. It's kind of human nature. But Paul is so very clear that our salvation begins, it continues, it ends with God. The proof of its reality is in these works and outgrowth of our life. It's kind of like what James talks about. Faith without works is dead. It's an organic outgrowth of what God is naturally doing in us. If I could jump back over to Galatians, like I mentioned, the whole point about the Spirit in our lives, that's the proof that God's at work, and the Spirit is what creates the fruit. So Paul is being theologically so consistent uh, here. There's nothing we can do both to save ourselves or to complete our salvation, God is already doing it, and we simply cooperate with Him. Is it safe to say that, I don't want to say interpretation, but an application or an observation from these verses, if you understood the incredible riches of your salvation by faith through grace, not of yourselves, you would want to follow Him in obedience? I would agree 100%. It creates an attitude of worship, an attitude of thankfulness. It creates an attitude of desiring to please Him in all things. I think you said it exactly the right way. We create this attitude as a result of our understanding, which again is part of the reason that Paul is having to go so deep in these first few chapters before he gets into the applications he wants to make starting in chapter 4. Which, by the way, is a good time to inject here, and I'm sort of a be-do, be-do, be-do guy, you know, that Paul typically writes about 50% biblical theology, and then about 50%, how does this practically work out in life? Mm -hmm. Yep, that's exactly right. And we we see see that that. in Ephesians really interestingly. Okay, let's go. You brought up but God in verse 4, and I got to go to 13, but now Mm -hmm. in Christ Jesus— 
Yep, that's exactly right. The same thing is happening in this latter part of chapter two. I made the comment that chapter two, verses one through 10, a lot of people think of as being personal or vertical about our salvation. In chapter two, verse 11, he moves to the horizontal and the relational. And so the first few verses there, 11 through 13, are talking about how Gentiles were far off. They were not in any way associated with God. They didn't have any opportunities. But in verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then he begins to talk about how Christ has made these two groups, Jew and Gentile, into one new man in the church. And so this is the new creation idea. Christ is creating his church of these disparate groups. That's a wonderful outgrowth of our salvation. I mean, this has applications beyond belief for today. Mm -hmm. Think about the difficulties we have with people of different races in the church having difficulties, different cultural backgrounds, different classes, et cetera. All of that is put aside because we have all been saved and brought into the church by our Lord and Savior. And so, therefore, we are designed to be together. That's as much of an outgrowth of our salvation as my eternal destiny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, we must move for time. I could do hours on this, but let's jump to chapter three for this reason. And you're the New Testament Greek scholar <laughs> for this reason in order that, therefore, these phrases in English, and I, I like to help our English folks understand, and he's going to use this phrase a number of times for this reason later on, I think in verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. What's he doing from a stylistic and authorial intent as he writes these transitional phrases. Give us a little primer. Yeah. What he's trying to do is to make sure that everybody's tracking with his argument. So he has, for example, in chapter two, gone into a little bit of a deep dive about what our salvation looks like, kind of its outgrowth and the, the benefits of it. And now he's trying to draw everything to a close to make a kind of a conclusion so that he can then move on to the application. So when he says, for this reason, he's kind of drawing up all of the arguments that he had said in chapters one and two, because of the salvation we've received by God's love and mercy, because of its beautiful depth and breadth, he now is going to pray for them and move into a further discussion. What's interesting about chapter three is that Paul kind of interrupts himself. If you notice in verse 14, he says the same thing for this reason. You kind of pointed that out. The grammar of this first part, verses one through 13, it looks like Paul intended to go one direction, but then he got a little bit sidetracked kind of in a, mm-hmm. yeah, in a, in a, in a Holy Spirit inspired, uh, inspired way. And so I like that inspired. Yeah. I, I might, I might have to steal that. That's a good sniglet. Yeah. yeah well, I don't know if it's proper English, but you know, or <laughs> it, communi- it just comes my, out. Yeah. My wife says uh, I communicated, didn't I? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. (laughs) When I correct my wife, which is not a good thing. (laughs) So in this section, he's getting into the plan of God to include Gentiles, which was not fully and completely understood from the Old Testament. It was known that they were going to receive blessings because they would be blessed through Abraham. And we know of various uh, non-Israelites who who proselytized and came uh, to to have faith in uh, Yahweh God. Ruth, for example, in the Old Testament is a great example of that. But the fullness with which they are included, the, the, the complete, a total equal standing 
as with Jews, that's the mystery that uh, was totally unheard of before. So Paul explains that because that's part of the riches of God. There's no person in the world, no matter creed, no matter race, no matter geography, that can be excluded. Everyone is included if they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a wonderful testimony mm-hmm. to God's love and his grace. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like another way to refix, to recreate the situation that he desired at the beginning, where all peoples of the earth were in a relationship with him. And so he then, after he gives that explanation, kind of another deep dive into God's purposes and how they're playing out in our salvation, he then prays for the Ephesians church in verse 14. And basically he prays that they would understand even better the salvation that they had received, and that it would so, as he says in verse 17, root and ground them in love, that they would then have a foundation on which to build a life of holiness as they respond back to God in worship and daily living. Again, he uses a just a veritable thesaurus of theology here, unfathomable, comprehend, manifold, breadth, length, height, depth, eternal, surpassing, filled up, fullness, riches, far more abundantly. You know, if we'd have written this paper and, you know, for a grammar paper, we'd have been accused of overusing adjectives. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, but it gives testimony to the fact that what Paul is trying to describe is almost unbelievingly incomprehensible. You know, a lot of people look at verse 20 and they use that as a prayer for what God might do, for example, in our churches or in our Mm -hmm. family lives, et cetera. But what it's really talking about is our salvation. He has already done in us. He is able to save us far beyond ways that we can even ask or think. We're saved more than we can even comprehend. And that just boggles the mind. And it leads to worship, as Paul does in verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I mean, what a what a way to end the discussion mm-hmm. of what our salvation is about. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's where we see, at least, again, I could be wrong, but we see the humanity of the apostle. He's writing this stuff, and we've talked often about big A author, little A author, big A author, God the Holy Spirit moving Paul to write these things, little A author, the style and experiences of the apostle. But then he, it's like, wait a minute, this is blowing my mind. Then he kind of goes (laughs) off into this, praise God, we'd sing a hymn, you know, but he goes off into these just almost, you know, sanctified tirades of, you Mm -hmm. just can't imagine the height, the depth, the uh, eternal surpassing greatness filled up. I mean, just, you know, you can't use enough. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great way to put it. Paul Paul is almost standing with his mouth open in wonder, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he just can't get Can it all Can you believe out. this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's jump over to chapter 4. Um, most of our Bibles have this idea of the unity of the Spirit as the, the translators' committee's title to the chapter, which isn't bad. But I like, again, we begin the first real walk. In chapter 2, we were walking in darkness. Now we're walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love one another, diligence. I mean, just stack upon stack upon stack. And then Mm -hmm. he gets to verse 5, actually 4 and 5. One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Help us out, Doc. Yeah, the key thing to keep in mind here is that Paul, like we've already said, he's got this theological substratum that he's working with, and that kind of bursts out in verses 4, 5, and 6. There are singularities of who God is that 
dictate how we are to live. So, for example, we have one Lord. There's one Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, who saved us, who called us into being into his church. Therefore, the church should be unified. It would be contrary to the nature of Christ if the church was not living in unity. So those verses are key because they show how Paul thinks about these kinds of things. It's not just an arbitrary thing. Okay, we now have this church, so let's make sure it's unified so it can function appropriately. It's a theological connection between who God is, who our Lord is, what he has done for us, and then the outgrowth. And so that's why unity is important. It's because we are called to live together in submission to our one Lord, and we reflect his his nature and his character when we reflect that unity. Mm-hmm. And so when Paul uses terms like humility and gentleness, I say that those are the, the human characteristics that have to grease the wheels for all of this to work. If we're going to be unified, I have to be humble when I interact with you. You have to be humble when you interact with me. We have to be gentle with one another. We have to be patient. So, And we know theologically that these are all characteristics of our Lord. They're fruits of the Spirit that he talks about in Galatians chapter 5. But all of that is reflecting that fundamental reality that we have one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is one church. And so therefore that salvation and ecclesiology then lead to this proper sanctification. But Mike, you and I can't trump up humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love. This isn't a work of the flesh. No, and, that's, and that's, that's the, you exactly know, right. I had a friend who was a navigator missionary for many years in China, and I appreciated it. I was back when I was uh, serving in Northern Virginia on staff at a church there as a pastor, and he said, Michael, you can't make your flesh better. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think the key here is to recognize verse 1. We are urged to live worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In other words, the pieces are already in place. God has staked his claim on our lives. He has called us. Now, Paul doesn't talk about it here, but the Spirit is the key way in which that's going to work out. Obviously, you know, I mentioned Galatians 5. That's one of the key things to keep in mind about a key passage about the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We can't create those fruits, but the Spirit in us does that. And so the unity of the Spirit, another way to translate that might be the unity from the Spirit or the unity by the Spirit. So the Spirit is actively working to create the things in us that lead to unity in our human relationships. There's seven ones there, Doc. Mm -hmm. One body, one spirit, one hope. I mean, help me out. Yeah, a lot of people think that this is possibly a early creed or theological statement that Paul Mm -hmm. borrowed, Mm -hmm. because it's certainly written that way. I like to take my Greek students here when we learn the number one, because the number one shows up in each one of the genders in this verse. And so it's a good memory verse to kind of work on that. But it's a concise theological statement about who God is, what he has done, and how he has constituted his church. So there's a, like with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, there's a ton of theology here that we could really go deep on. Let's move, since we can't do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it'd be nice, but we'd be here Four, for hours. 4.11 is another one of these whetstone verses we sharpen our knives on when we almost, you know, how many churches use Ephesians 4.11 and 12 for their, you know, mission and vision statement. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping purpose explanation for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the Mm -hmm. building up of the body of Christ. 
Yeah, the image here is of the body. And so Paul is kind of playing with that metaphor a little bit. Obviously, the body is made up of all kinds of different parts. And we could make an argument that the things he mentions or the roles he mentions in verse 11 are some of the key roles, like maybe the analogy might be the heart or the lungs or what have you. But the point is, is that each one of those roles is to help build up the body. We are all within the one body of Christ. And so our responsibility is to our brothers and sisters to build them up, to help them become mature so that they can avoid being confused by bad doctrine or bad practice. And the goal is ultimately to have a healthy functioning body, which turns back around to its head, the Lord Jesus Christ, and gives full worship and obedience and submission. So yeah, this is a key verse. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel like this is meant to be exhaustive or are there other giftings and roles that could come alongside these? Well, you know, and I'm not bulldogmatic on it, but to me, these have been cornerstones. And we also have to talk about, you know, what's still active today. But this was the establishment of his local assembly and Mm -hmm. the apostles who brought the message, the prophets, and we could talk about new and old Testament uses of that term, evangelists and pastors, teachers. And we often camp on the last two. But to me, these are the four cornerstones theologically of what he established. But that's why I like 12. Why did Mm -hmm. he give us these? These were gifted people, by the way, not offices, which is often, I think, misunderstood. And I think you're right. And so now why? To equip the saints. And this is always, in, you know, back to Timothy and trust the faithful men, uh, the work of service. And, and that work of service in building up the body takes lots of forms, right? I mean, mm-hmm. these certainly are the overarching principles. Yeah, I would agree. And the reason I ask that question is because I think oftentimes people come to this verse and they say, oh, I'm not a one of those four minister. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I don't have a role in equipping the church. I think that's probably not what Paul wants mm-hmm. us to understand. Christ has graciously gifted these particular people. That is very true. But when you look at other places where we talk about spiritual giftings and roles, there's some other terms. And so I say that these are obviously the key roles, but the lesson is, is that everybody has a role in equipping the saints. Think about, you know, dear people in our church that are encouragers or who have the uh, ministry of helps or stacking of chairs after, you know, the service. Um, All of those are helpful. So I I don't want people to read that and think, oh, I'm off the hook because I don't have one of those roles. I think it's illustrative. I think those are the key roles, but those are also models for all of us Mm -hmm. to be involved in equipping each other to be mature in Christ. Absolutely. Well, and that's why I think churches have been attracted to this historically, because we're trying to equip the saints for the work of mm-hmm. service, the building of the body of Christ. And then he continues until we attain to the unity of the faith, which, you know, naysayers would object. Well, look how many denominations you have in the West <laughs> alone. You're far from being unified. Well, there's a difference yeah. between unity and union. But, sure. Um, well, and we can go to classic confessions of the Christian faith that Christians have have professed and agreed upon for centuries. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, just because there's different denominations doesn't mean that the church is not unified. It does raise the question, and it's yeah. important to to ask that and to think it through. But you know, the bedrock of our confession that Christ is fully God, fully man, that He atoned for our sins through His substitution on the cross. Uh, those things are the bedrock that unify us in Christ. Now, again, I mentioned the five walks, chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Verse 17, 
so I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, which I always stop and say, you know, before you came to Christ, you could do nothing good. You know, mm-hmm. you're back to the dead in sin. And then chapter 5, 2, he's going to make a little bit of a transition, walk in love. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then 8 and 15, we're moving to walk as children of light. And mm-hmm. then... 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So again, you've touched on this before. I brought it up, but just kind of, you know, give me your flow here, Mike. What's sure. what's he doing? Yeah, I think what Paul is doing is trying to lay the groundwork for us to understand how every facet of our lives is under this mm-hmm. urging that he has, that we need to make sure that when we think about who we are, what we do, There's no part of it that is not covered by this admonition. Just as our salvation covers uh, every part of who we are, our response of submission to Christ, of holy living, covers every part of who we are. So I think what Paul is doing is trying to cover every base that he can think of in the time and space that he's got so that nobody walks away thinking, oh, yeah, okay, I'm doing okay in that one area, but God's not concerned about this other area. So he's talking about relationships. He's talking about how we communicate. He's talking about how we share time together. The big emphasis as he gets past verse 15 of chapter 5 is how it works out in our family relationships. So every facet of life is covered by this admonition to live in a way that's worthy of our calling. So it's kind of the flip side, just as we have been totally and completely wonderfully saved in ways we can understand, our sanctification plays out in every facet of our lives, perhaps even more than we ever thought. I want to move to the marriage section, and I want to get your take on chapter 5, verse 21, because Mm -hmm. this parts the water between what we call complementarian vis-a-vis egalitarian, complementarian, equal value, distinct role, egalitarian, equal value, equal role. And they will often use those who promote either side or the other will say, this is the overarching principle, which is, again, why our Bible breaks sometimes aren't the best, but be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so that's mutual submission. Sounds like, oh, Mm -hmm. but then we get this hierarchical relationship, which to me, forget the husband and wife for a moment, verse 24, as the church is subject to Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, wait a minute, there's no mutual submission between the church and Christ. <laughs> right, yeah, and I mean, that's been a big discussion as of late, as, uh, as yes. anyone who's been involved in these debates knows. But yeah, I agree with the way that you've presented it. If you looked at verse 21 just by itself, and there was no verse 22 and following, we would make the argument that, oh, that does appear to be the the standard, mutual submission to one another. But we know that verse 22 follows, and what Paul presents is a beautiful picture of a loving relationship between husband and wife, where each has their God-given role, uh, and each is fulfilling what God has designed them for. And this mirrors in many ways what Paul does with other passages. For example, um, he talks in the pastoral epistles about how Timothy needs to graciously lead his people, but not to submit to them. He's their leader. And so they've got to, in turn, respect him, etc. So yes, there is a sense in which we are all equal at the foot of the cross, and we all submit to one another and are concerned for one another. But there are also, at the same time, recognized God-ordained roles that are the way we have been designed. And as we fulfill them, we find a happiness and human flourishing in our relationships. Well, and the other thing I point out is the most obvious is you've got 
two, three verses, really two technically, that talk about the wife. And then verse 25 to 33 is beating up on the husband. If you <laughs> would love your wife the way Jesus loved you, you know, I often tell people, you wouldn't have a discussion about submission and headship and whether those were roles or responses. If husbands would love their wives as Christ of the church and gave himself up for her. Stop mm-hmm. right there. Yep. If your objective was to sacrifice, to put her priorities first, to nourish, to cherish her as Christ of the church, you know, this whole debate would go away. Yeah, absolutely. Seems and to I me. Think it, I think it's also important to say in terms of application, we don't love our wives in order to get a return, we love them because we love them. And so there needs to be this now, wait a minute there. giving. <laughs> it's hitting close to home. I Darn, know. you mean I can't yeah. manipulate Cindy by doing something for her? <laughs> no, that's, I think that's kind of the, the trap we fall into. Okay, I'll be loving and caring because I want to get something in return. But that's not what Christ did. Christ freely gave with no expectation of return. He he obviously knew in God's plan that there would be those who had faith in him and would respond, but it wasn't manipulative. And so it requires a real self-sacrifice and checking our, our own desires at the door. And we've got to realize that this model of giving and loving is totally devoted to the other, no matter what may happen to me. Over the years, Cindy and I spoke with Family Life we can to remember marriage conferences for 15 years and and we gave you know marriage and seminars and churches and church camps and retreats and for years you know i came up with this crazy thing and people look at me like the rca dog but i don't think headship and submission are roles i think they're responses mm-hmm. because if, if submission was a role then all a wife would ever do or anyone in submission would say yes sir yes ma'am Yes, sir. I mean, yep, fair if enough. it's a yeah. role, it's a response. And when we look at this, be subject to your own husband, so that's a response. Are you going to be submissive to the Lord? And then when husband love your wives, that's a response as Christ mm-hmm. of the church, not a role, not to be yeah, the head. Absolutely. And, fair? And not to, yeah, absolutely. I would agree. And not to go all theological, we've got to remember that this is not written just as a manual for marriage. It's written as a response to the wonderful, beautiful salvation that we've received. Yes. So when a Christian husband and wife think about their salvation, it should impact the way that they treat each other. Paul is not wanting those to be thought of in different compartments. They're definitely part of the same package because we are not only husband and wife, we're brother and sister in Christ. We're in the same body, and there's a spiritual depth to our relationship that uh, enables us to, like you said, to respond with worship to Christ and care for each other rather than just self-serving. What do we do with uh, verse 5 of chapter 6? Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear mm-hmm. and trembling and sincerity in your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as yeah. men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Ouch. Yeah, that's a that's a tough passage. We've got to acknowledge that the social context that Paul was in is different from our current context. The Roman society was founded on, in a sense, on slavery. Uh, it was very, very common. But we also want to pair this with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. If you were able to be free, do so. He recognizes that freedom is the ultimate goal, but he also recognizes that society, it's like the Titanic. You can't you know, turn on a dime. And so when you're in a situation, even that may be negative, even that may be restrictive, we can still honor the Lord and 
follow him in everything. It is important to recognize that Roman slavery was in many ways very different from the context of American slavery. Many slaves in the Roman society were very well educated, perhaps even better than their masters. They oftentimes had what we might call financial jobs or um, some other type of home job, like for example, raising children. So it wasn't chattel slavery like it was in the United States. But I do think that when we look at the book of Philemon, we can say that Paul ultimately knew that no person should be owned. We're only to be submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he plants the seeds for the ultimate demise of that institution. But here, in a sense, he's speaking very practically. You're in a negative situation. Uh, You still need to honor the Lord Jesus Christ and live in a way that brings him glory. Was there not also an indentured servant where you were bankrupt, you lost your way of, you know, a livelihood and you indenture mm-hmm. yourself to a large landowner. We might think of going to work for the, I always use the illustration of the uh, ranch hands at Bonanza. You mm-hmm. know, they had a bunkhouse yeah. and they got meals and they worked the ranch because they didn't yeah. own the ranch, but, yeah. but they were employed. Is that a too far of a romanticizing it? Well, there were certainly parts of Roman slavery that looked like that, but a lot of slaves, for example, were prisoners of war. So not everybody mm-hmm. who was a slave was in that situation, but we have records of slaves, for example, earning money independently of their masters such that they could ultimately buy their freedom. freedom, So so it was a very different kind of situation. Now that's not to condone it. It's just to be honest and to recognize the different social situation, which helps us understand why Paul can, can speak to these people in this way. Chapter 6, verse 10, the armor of God. We have heard so many horrible (laughs) sermons on this passage. Be strong, verse 10, put on the full armor, stand firm, 13, take up the full armor. Verse 13, stand firm. 14, stand firm. Take up the, help us out here, Doc. Sure. Well, the first comment I would make is that if we did not have this passage, the entire vacation Bible school industry would be bankrupt. Um, How many of us have memories of cardboard cutouts of those uh, breastplates and things of that nature? Yeah, the way to understand this, and again, I don't want to be a broken record, but this has to be understood in light of what God has already done for us. This is part of our calling that's already in place. Uh, And so therefore, we are simply being encouraged with a very picturesque metaphor to live out what is already true about us. Um, And so, for example, when we think through the different things that we're asked to do to, you know, for example, the belt of truth, for example, the breastplate of righteousness, etc. All those are things that we have in Christ. All those are things that are part of who he is and what we have in our salvation. The crowning verse and take the helmet of salvation, that's a description of our entire being in a sense. So I think what Paul is doing is trying in a very powerful way to talk about how spiritual warfare is a reality, but our salvation has already prepared us for that. We simply have to stand firm in our faith, keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and spiritual warfare will be handled in that way. Okay, land the plane for us, Dr. Pure. You've already done it, but now we're closing in on the end of the letter. Again, I love his prayers with all prayer, verse 18, and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit. Let me stop right there. What's that mean to pray in the Spirit, by the way? I think that means to pray in the recognition that the Spirit is enabling us and helping us to pray as we should. I don't think it means any type of spiritual state or you know mental attitude. It's a, just a recognition that when we pray, we pray with the Spirit's blessing. We pray with His enablement. We pray in the Spirit when we recognize that He is enabling our prayers to work. Um, oftentimes, we think that when we pray, we have to pray a certain way or it has to be just right. 
the spirit is enabling us. We're imperfect. We're in process. We're not going to be able to please God outside of the work of the spirit. And so it's just a recognition that he is enabling us much like Paul talks about in Romans chapter eight, about how the spirit sometimes even prays for us when we don't know how to. Again, I try to you know get to 30,000 elevation on some of these passages, not to get so, because my tendency is to get in the word studies and get lost and nobody cares, but mm-hmm. it's back up because verse 18, he talks about pray. And then he prays that he might speak. Mm-hmm. And I find that connection striking. Here's the apostle saying, uh, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in spirit with this in view for perseverance, petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf. Mm-hmm. At the utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with bold. And we go, goodness gracious, if Paul the Apostle's praying for boldness, I'm toast. You know what I mean? <laughs> Here's a guy that, you know, jousted dragons and, yeah. uh, you know, spoke before, you know, Felix and Agrippa. And, yeah. and here we're saying, goodness, if Paul the Apostle asked for prayer to speak boldly, what's our situation? Goodness. Yeah, I actually like to think about this in a positive way. I think sometimes we look at the Apostle Paul and we think, oh, I could never mm-hmm. be as bold as him. I could never evangelize like he did. Well, guess what? He had people praying for him. And mm-hmm. that this is a testimony of that. And so as we pray for others, they are then graciously enabled, given confidence, given words to say, given opportunities. So this gives me hope and confidence. Um, mm-hmm. If we, for example, want our pastors to preach with conviction from the word so that lives are changed, we need to be praying for them. We need to lift them up. They aren't going to have this confidence, this ability on their own. It comes from the Lord, and we are involved in that as we pray for them, for them as they preach and fulfill their ministries. He finishes with verses 22 and 3. He may comfort your hearts. Well, he's talking about Tychicus. Peace to the brethren, love mm-hmm. with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible. And the text really doesn't have the word love there. We supplete that. But uh, give me your sense on this endearing and uh, encouraging conclusion. Yeah, he, again, is putting a whole bunch of theology Mm -hmm. in a very, very short space. Peace, obviously, he talked about that, for example, when he talked about how in 2.14, Jesus is our peace because he has now brought brothers and sisters together in the church. Peace is from God, and peace is what God graciously grants us, not just absence of conflict, but a positive promotion of positive feelings and state. And so that's something that's graciously given to us by the Lord, as well as love that comes from him with faith, meaning that God is involved in gendering our faith and helping us to respond. All of that is a package that comes from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is one of those concepts in verse 24 that is just so big, it's almost impossible to be able to encapsulate. But God's gracious disposition to us is manifested in this wonderful gift that he gives us, which then enables us to further experience that goodness in relationships. So it's this wonderful circle of how God is gracious to us. He then enables us to have a relationship with him, which enables us to experience that grace fresh and new every day. Mm -hmm. So these verses are are just, they are a traditional closing benediction, but they're so packed with the beauty of our salvation from our loving God and our gracious Lord and Savior. It again, just leaves you almost with your mouth open in wonder at how beautiful our Savior is and how wonderful the salvation is he's given to us. 
He begins in chapter 1 with the salutation, uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he concludes the letter, grace to all with love of our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. So we see that often in his, I call them his bookends, just, mm-hmm. you know, he begins and ends with, don't forget, this is all about grace. Apart from grace, yeah. you can do nothing. The grace of God's mm-hmm. unfathomable. And here he uses that word incorruptible, which, you know, years ago I did a word study on it, but I can't prove it. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, the idea of not being subject to decay. Mm-hmm. And I think another, if I remember correctly, you couldn't interrupt it with death. Right. Was one yeah, that's that. a great reminder. Oftentimes people think or are scared that they'll somehow falter in their faith. If our love for the Lord is true, he promises that it will be incorruptible. It will endure. Uh, and so we might have periods of time in which we wax or wane. But ultimately, when you look at things from God's point of view, he sees that he has started something wonderful in us and he will bring it to completion. And that love that we have for him will be will endure for eternity. Dr. Michael Buer. He is a professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. And if you go to Dallas Seminary, you can take him for a variety of courses from elements of Greek, intermediate Greek, New Testament exegesis, exegesis of the gospel narratives, the New Testament introduction. That course was murder with Dr. Horner. <laughs> a history yep. of the New Testament interpreted church and New Testament theology. We'll have to have you back on the program and you can tutor us in some of these other subjects that are in your wheelhouse. I would love that. It's been a great discussion, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it and been blessed by it. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you for helping us out. God bless, man. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.